Hello, everybody. Welcome to Eddie Hurst's podcast version of The War of the Worlds. It is me, Eddie Hurst, and soon we will have The War of the Worlds. This is Chapter 4 of Book 2, The Death of the Curate. But, Eddie! I hear you say. I thought The War of the Worlds was one book. So did I. The thing about War of the Worlds is that it was released episodically on a monthly basis in Pearson's monthly magazine. It was done as a sort of serialised thing, which I know what you're thinking. Gosh, that sounds like it would really lend itself to the format of podcasting. And you would be 100% correct. So that's what we've done. We've uh, broken up every chapter, added some music in, got some jokes along the way, done some deep dives of research, and, you know, today is a pretty important chapter. It's the death of the curate. So what do you think is going to happen? I don't don't know. I don't know. It's a bit of a spoiler chapter, isn't it? Um, Anyway, we've got the final episode of uh, Tom Burgess in, so thank you so much to Tom for being in the show. It's been great to have him as the curate, bringing a a fair weakness to the role, I think, in the best way? In the best way. Uh, Also, he has a great podcast called Into the Archives with Peter Fleming, which if you enjoy this, you'll absolutely love that. Uh, Go go give it a listen. Go give it a listen. And thank you all very much for listening. I saw this week that we're uh, we're back in the uh, in the charts of the Netherlands. Uh, we've been in the United Arab Emirates charts for ages. Thanks for listening. I mean, l- let me know. Let me know where you are. Let me know if you're enjoying it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. I'm E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T on all of them. Or send us an email, eddiehurst at gmail. If you are more close to where I'm recording or more close to the invasion site of the Martians, i.e. the UK, you can come and see me at the Musical Comedy awards this saturday on the 18th of september uh, that's in the old smoky london town also this uh, tomorrow in fact if you're listening to this and you're in manchester why not come along to my other baby project my other project which is cultural comedy tours where at salford museum and art gallery we have the fantastic comedians daniel nicholas and tony wright giving some tours based around all of the crazy objects in there wow eddie that seems like a interesting way to explore victorian culture in a humorous sense Hmm, I wonder if that resonates with anyone listening right now. Maybe. There's only one way to find out. Anyway, guys, thank you very much. Let's get into the chapter. And do remember, please rate, review, subscribe. It does help people find the podcast. Anyway, enough intro. Let's get into it. This curate's not going to kill himself. Or is he? Let's find out. Chapter 4. The Death of the Curate. It was on the sixth day of our imprisonment that I peeped for the last time and presently found myself alone. Instead of keeping close to me and trying to oust me from the slit, the curate had gone back into the scullery. I was struck by a sudden thought. I went back quickly and quietly into the scullery. In the darkness, I heard the curate drinking. I snatched in the darkness, and my fingers caught a bottle of burgundy. I mean, firstly, I don't know if you don't know this or not, but burgundy is just a, a, it's a bottle of wine. Burgundy's a type of, type of wine from the, Burgundy area. Uh, I, I, I didn't think I'd bother explaining lad with that one. Also, uh, shout out to using darkness uh, in in one sentence and then immediately into the next one. Right? That's what we really need to to lighten up this uh, this this chapter of people slowly losing their mind. And what I can only imagine by the title is is a death of someone. Seems like it's going to be at the hand of the narrator at this point. For a few minutes, there was a tussle. The bottle struck the floor and broke. Oh, my burgundy! And I desisted and rose. We stood panting and threatening each other. In the end, I planted myself between him and the food, and told him of my determination to begin a discipline. I divided the food in the pantry, 
into rations to last us 10 days. I would not let him eat any more that day. In the afternoon, he made a feeble effort to get at the food. I had been dozing, but in an instant, I was awake. Fortunately, I was alert like a coiled spring with the reflexes of a cat and jumped like a spring cat at his face. The, the bastard. All day and all night, we sat face to face. I weary but resolute, and he weeping and complaining of his immediate hunger. It was, I know, a night and a day, but to me it seemed, and it seems now, an interminable length of time. I mean, maybe it's just my threshold for boredom, but I'd say a night and a day in a dark room hiding from Martians staring at a parishioner trying to eat all of your food that you've only got for ten days anyway, or you might get killed by these weird aliens, is, is, that's fair to describe that as an interminable length of time. I mean, not only are you bored, it's also, a, you're a bit stressed out. And so our widened incompatibility ended at last in open conflict. For two vast days, we struggled in undertones and wrestling contests. Sounds like uh, most of my flat shares. Oi, oi! But seriously, I am sorry. I think I behaved very boorishly over those years. There were times when I beat and kicked him madly. Times when I cajoled and persuaded him. And once I tried to bribe him with the last bottle of burgundy. For there was a rainwater pump from which I could get water. But neither force nor kindness availed. He was indeed beyond reason. He would neither desist from his attacks on the food, nor from his noisy babbling to himself. The rudimentary precautions to keep our imprisonment endurable, he would not observe. Slowly, I began to realise the complete overthrow of his intelligence. To perceive that my sole companion in this close and sickly darkness was a man insane! And so I had to kill him. Oh wait, sorry, that, not, that bit's not in here. From certain vague memories, I am inclined to think my own mind wandered at times. I had strange and hideous dreams whenever I slept. It sounds paradoxical, but I am inclined to think that the weakness and insanity of the curate warned me, braced me, and kept me a sane man. On the eighth day, he began to talk aloud instead of whispering, and nothing I could do would moderate his speech. It is just, O oh God. He would say over and over again. It is just. On me and mine be the punishment laid. We have sinned. We have fallen short. There was poverty, sorrow. The poor were trodden in the dust and I held my peace. I preached acceptable folly. My God, what folly. When I should have stood up, Though I died for it, and called upon them to repent, repent! Oppressors of the poor and needy! The winepress of God! Ooh, it's over there now, actually. Oh, that's delicious. Then he would suddenly revert to the matter of the food I withheld from him. Praying, begging, weeping, at last threatening. I'll, I'll, I'll shout and bring the Martians upon us. He began to raise his voice. I'll shout and bring the Martians upon us. You better watch it. I prayed him not to. Metaphor alert. Metaphor alert. Prayers literally going unanswered. Perhaps not a metaphor, but definitely an allegory or some sort of symbolism Wells is wanting to use. Pop it in your essay. Metaphor alert. He perceived a hold on me. He threatened he would shout and bring the Martians upon us. For a time, that scared me, but any concession would have shortened our chance of escape beyond estimating. I defied him, although I felt no assurance that he might not do this thing. But that day, at any rate, he did not. <laughs>
he talked with his voice rising slowly. Through the greater part of the eighth and ninth days. Right, so his voice is slowly rising through eight and nine days. What's that, like a tenth of a decibel an hour or something like that? Like he's just really, really slowly moving the volume of his voice up, like throughout a 48 hour window. Credit where credit's due, that is weapons grade annoying. Threats and treaties mingled with a torrent of half sane and always frothy repentance for his vacant sham of God's service, such as made me pity him. Okay, one torrent of half sane and always frothy repentance for his vacant sham of God's service. Torrent of half sane and frothy repentance for his vacant sham of God's service. It's for a, for a corridor, for a corridor. Then he slept a while and began again with renewed strength so loudly that I must needs make him desist. Be still! I implored. He rose to his knees, for he had been sitting in the darkness near the copper. I have been still too long. He said, in a tone that must have reached the pit. And now I must bear my witness. Woe unto this unfaithful city! Woe, 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 woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet! Shut up! I said, rising to my feet. You can't, you can't talk to me like that. And in terror lest the Martians should hear us. For God's sake! Nay! Shouted the curate at the top of his voice, standing likewise and extending his arms. Speak! The word of the Lord is upon me! In three strides, he was at the door leading into the kitchen. I must bear my witness. I go. It has already been too long delayed. I put out my hand and felt the meat chopper hanging to the wall. Here we go. Death of the curate by the hand of the narrator. No Martian murder, just regular murder. In a flash, I was after him. I was fierce with fear. Before he was halfway across the kitchen, I had overtaken him with one last touch of humanity. I turned the blade back and struck him with the butt. Uh, he said butt. And also, I mean, it doesn't look like murder's on the cards. He went headlong forward and lay stretched on the ground. I stumbled over him and stood, panting. He lay still. Suddenly, I heard a noise without. The run and smash of slipping plaster. And the triangular aperture in the wall was darkened. I looked up and saw the lower surface of a handling machine coming slowly across the hole. One of its gripping limbs curled amid the debris. Another limb appeared, feeling its way over the fallen beams. I stood, petrified, staring. Then I saw through a sort of glass plate near the edge of the body, the face, as we may call it, and the dark eyes of a Martian, peering and then a long metallic snake of tentacle that came feeling slowly through the hole. No human murder, we are back to Martian murder. I turned by an effort, stumbled over the curate, and stopped at the scullery door. The tentacle was now some way, two yards or more, in the room, and twisting and turning, with queer sudden movements this way and that. For a while I stood fascinated by that slow, fitful advance. Then... With a faint, hoarse cry, I forced myself across the scullery. I trembled violently. I could scarcely stand upright. I opened the door of the coal cellar and stood there in the darkness, staring at the faintly lit doorway into the kitchen. 
Had the Martian seen me? What was it doing now? Now, I think the technical term for what the, what the narrator is right now is fucked. Something was moving to and fro there, very quietly. Every now and then it tapped against the wall or started on its movements with a faint metallic ringing, like the movement of keys on a split ring. Hello, it's me, the explaining lad. I can feel in my bones aging is happening. It feels like it comes faster every time. But sure enough, as the sun sets and the moon rises, I'll be cut up and reanimated once more. What existence is this? Who am I? Anyway, enough about me, sorry. A split ring, it's um it's it's a it's it's a key ring, it's a key ring. You know that the 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 metal bit that's a circle, it's a key ring, that's what it that's what it means. It's a ring with a split in it. So, I don't know why they don't call it keyring, but that's what it is. I can feel it coming closer. My time, it's almost over! Then a heavy body, I knew too well what, was dragged across the floor of the kitchen towards the opening, irresistibly attracted. I crept out to the door and peeped into the kitchen. That feels very much twisting the knife into the curate, doesn't it? Heavy body. Like, the guy's at least knocked out and he's getting dragged out by Martians. And the best thing that you can conjure to describe him is, Oh, old lardass there is getting grabbed out of here. He's going to die. And also, I find him repulsively fat. In the triangle of bright outer sunlight, I saw the Martian. In its briareus of a handling machine, scrutinising the curate's head. I thought at once that it would infer my presence from the mark of the blow I had given him. I crept back into the coal cellar, shut the door, and began to cover myself up as much as I could, and as noiselessly as possible in the darkness, among the firewood and coal therein. Okay, I know normally for explaining stuff we'd have the King of Comprehension, the explaining lad himself up in this area, but I want to go into a bit more of a deep dive into this particular thing. Also, a lot of the names here to figure out who and what Briarius is in are... Also, a lot of the names to give context to Briarius are all in ancient Greek, and quite frankly, I think the explaining lad has enough on his plate without having to worry about the ancient tongue. Briarius was one of what was known as the Hecatonchiers. Hecatonchiers? Hecatonchiers. Hecat... Warning. Hecaton. The following deep Hecaton. dive contains atrocious pronunciation of classical Greek mythology. Hecaton. You have been warned. Also known as the Sentimanes. And to explain what they are, their name translates roughly as a group to the 100-handers. And whilst that sounds like a nightmare of a student improv group, he was actually a giant from the creation story of the Greek gods versus the Titans. To briefly explain that and give a bit of context, uh, Kronos, uh, Kronos was dad of the gods and king of the Titans, thought that he was going to be killed by his children thanks to a prophecy he heard. So he did what any responsible father would do and decided to eat up all his children. Um nom 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 nom. Except he failed to eat one of them. Zeus, god of thunder. No, not Thor, Zeus the other one, who grew up 
and returned to release the other gods from his stomach to collectively destroy their father. Which, to be fair if you didn't before, after being in your dad's stomach for close to a lifetime, you'd probably want to kill them too. And who were some of the creatures that joined the uprising to overthrow the Titans and Kronos? Of course, they were three of the 100 handers, along with a whole of a raft of creatures that would no doubt make a terrible high-budget CGI film. That just doesn't really get the nuance and the joy of the oral storytelling of these myths in the first place. Oh, uh, also the 100 hand guys had 50 heads, so I think it was kind of a one head to two hands ratio deal. Uh, it seems kind of busy. Pull one out for the VFX artists to have to figure out some way to animate that guy in a live-action film soon. Briarius's name means strong one. And he also has a human name given to him in the Iliad of Aegeon. Aegeon? Aegeon? Aegeon. 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 That's it, that's what I'm sticking with. Essentially, giving him a cameo in the Trojan War universe too, so he can dine out on some of those sweet, sweet extra royalties. For a little bit more backstory here, Briarius and their two siblings were some of the children of Uranus and Gaia. Or Uranus, behave! Who were the first wave of gods before Kronos and the Titans came along, so it's kind of like the uh, children defeat the parents, and it's, it's Greek tragedy, innit? Anyway, when Kronos came to power, he decided to do what any new king would when faced with triplets, offering a combined peripheral vision of 300 eyes, and locked them up. Then they came back when Zeus knocked on for some help, a bit like the ghost army in the Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Remember that bit when Aragorn's like, hey, can you come join me? And the ghosts are like, okay. I remember that bit. So great, they had 50 heads, 100 hands, and by all accounts, they sound like badasses who just got out of jail. Good for them, you know, I, I think it's great that, that we're giving more rehabilitation to those guys. But what a complicated reference H.G. Wells has written as a way to simply describe that the Martians are looking a bit handsy. Unless all of you guys knew who Briarius was, in which case, maybe skip through a few seconds here. You can have too much of a good thing. Just ask my uncle who died in a giant tree full of honey. Poor Winston, rest in poo. I'm saying that my uncle was Winnie the Pooh and he died in a tree full of honey. But at the time of writing, Briarius was probably a lot better known as a reference, as most Greek and Roman mythology would be, thanks to... Victorian Classicism. No, not the Victorian practice of putting in a strict hierarchy of class system to divide society, oh, bloody ones. but the cultural phenomenon that was the performance and referencing of ancient texts. Victorians bloody loved a classical reference. They were mad for it. They loved referencing ancient Roman and Greek literature like Kanye West loves referencing Austin Powers and Will Ferrell. Even their burlesque acts had a rich tradition of basing acts on ancient literature. Here are a few that I've just completely made up. Jason and the Argonauties. Icarus flying too close to a bum, Eurydice's peep show, Prometheus stealing fire for man, the fire of his hot loins. My point here is not only can I write to a brief, but also that as burlesque was a performance that was largely enjoyed by everybody from the working to middle classes, audiences across all society were in some form used to being exposed to ancient mythology, as well as saucy dances. There are loads of reasons you can argue why the Victorian era was so interested in these stories. As literary levels rose, they were the texts that always held a great deal of cultural clout, so they were regularly taught in schools as part of a curriculum. I mean, even nowadays, you'll probably learn about myths in some form at school. There's also the 
the fact that with increased literacy was greater levels and interests in reading itself, and classics such as the Theogony, where Briarius is mentioned, and the Iliad where they cameo in, have a sort of universal and widely available quality to them. And what I mean by that, of course, is much like War of the Worlds that I'm doing, they were the sweet, sweet public domain. No license fees, baby! Making them a quick shorthand for a writer like H.G. Wells to show off he's read books, and also make the reader feel like a little smart old brain for getting the reference. As well as this, there was loads of architecture during this period created with a classical style in mind. The National Gallery in London, the Central Library in Manchester, and others that haven't immediately sprung to mind. Anywhere of a few pillars is pretty much a shoe in for this. People have made whole careers based on trying to figure out the reasons for why the Victorians loved pinching off of the Greeks and Romans so much. You could argue it's looking at past successful empires, and what's more, empires that were seen to be white Eurocentric spanning across the globe from the initial continent of Europe, maybe allowing the illusion of reflected glory for somewhere like the Victorian Empire feeling like it's part of their heritage. You can argue whatever you want, I mean, it doesn't mean you're right. Although, come on, that explanation does fit pretty right, doesn't it? It fits real neat into my looking past trying to deconstruct the racist, imperial and colonial undertones that permeate through the society that provided War of the Worlds. Right? Anyway. Briarius was a big old bloke with 50 heads and 100 hands, and two very tired legs, and referencing classical Greek literature was a way for writers and academics to show that they listened in school and were what is known in technical terms as... Nerd! Right, now let's return to my adapted audio drama of a Victorian sci-fi novel that is actually very cool. Every now and then I paused, rigid, to hear if the Martian had thrust its tentacles through the opening again. Then the faint metallic jingle returned. I traced it slowly, feeling over the kitchen. Presently I heard it nearer, in the scullery, as I judged. I thought that its length might be insufficient to reach me. I prayed copiously. What are you praying for? You know that praying does nothing. You just said earlier in this chapter that the praying gets you nowhere. What are you doing? It passed, scraping faintly across the cellar door. An age of almost intolerable suspense intervened. Then I heard it fumbling at the latch. It had found the door! The Martians understood doors! It worried at the catch for a minute, perhaps. And then the door opened. In the darkness I could just see the thing. Like an elephant's trunk more than anything else. Waving towards me and touching and examining the wall. Coals. Wooden ceiling. It was like a black worm swaying its blind head to and fro. Once, it even touched the heel of my boot. I was on the verge of screaming. I bit my hand. For a time, the tentacle was silent. I could have fancied it had been withdrawn. Presently, with an abrupt click, it gripped something. I thought it had me, and seemed to go out of the cellar again. For a minute, I was not sure. Apparently, it had taken a lump of coal to examine. I seized the opportunity of slightly shifting my position, which had become cramped, and then listened. I whispered passionate prayers for safety. Oh, please, 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 please save me. I'll give you such a big old, big old kiss on your lips, you big old gun, please. Then I heard the slow, deliberate sound creeping towards me again. Slowly. Slowly it drew near, scratching against the walls and tapping the furniture. Hey? Hey, what's this? What's this, Morgany? Posh that, posh. Very nice. While I was still doubtful, it rapped smartly against the cellar door and closed it. I heard it go into the pantry, and the biscuit tins rattled and a bottle smashed. 
and then came a heavy bump against the cellar door. Then silence that passed into an infinity of suspense. Not the biscuits! Had it gone? At last I decided that it had. It came into the scullery no more, but I lay all the tenth day in the close darkness, buried among coals and firewood, not daring even to crawl out for the drink which I craved. It was the eleventh day before I ventured so far from my security. The phone rang late last night at the parish meeting. Hopes for our assistant curate, they were fleeting. Had news from beyond Hampton Court, so bad we thought. But it took none of us as a big surprise. He was a fair weakness with beady eyes, but so long, Mr. The Curate. We hardly knew ya from the start. So long, our second favorite Curate. Thank God. We knew you never really stood a chance Farewell to you, the curate You didn't even get to have a name He never really liked his job He wasn't really good at it He was also quite an ugly man Just a no good crappy old shitty boring waste of space Church associate officiate But so long Mr. The Curate In many ways I'm quite glad that you're gone Gone for good, thank God, the curate Time to advertise a new position There we go. Uh, I hope that song's sort of a, a, a good send-off for the curate, I think it... Was trying to encapsulate the, the 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 feelings that you know he's he's one of the longest serving characters we've had in this book. He's got most the most personality of anyone in the human race that we've met so far, and yet that personality is just pure trash, pure trash. Thanks again to Tom Burgess. Please do go listen to his podcast if you enjoyed this one. Uh, it is Into the Archives with Peter Fleming. You can follow him on Twitter at Two Mergers as well. Also a thank you to Jason Cook for doing the fantastic background music. Not not this one in the intro one, but the ones in the narration. That's why he does. And I think he really, I think he really captures the essence of of that sort of 
lurking terror with a, a little John Carpenter flair, which is what I, why I really, I really like that. Uh, please do like, subscribe, rate, and tell people about the podcast. I don't ask for any donations or anything for this, uh, but if you can share it and let people know, I'd really appreciate that. Uh, again, if you're in London this Saturday, come see me at the Musical Comedy Awards. Please, sling us a vote. Uh, watch the other fantastic musical comedians. Uh, help me achieve my goal, much like the Martians, of world domination, but for me, in a very niche area. Cultural Comedy Tours is tonight, so if you've booked a ticket, I'll see you there. If you haven't booked a ticket, there's still time. Head on to the Salford Museum website, have a look on that. You can also use the code TOUR241. Um, and I'll, I'll let you know about some future ones. We've got some more dates of that. Follow me on Twitter at E-D-Y-H-U-R-S-T or Instagram, the same spelling, or Facebook, any of those. And, you know, don't be a stranger. Don't be a stranger. <laughs> don't be... What is that? What's that? Like, I think that's like a parent, a distant parent, isn't it? Don't be, don't be a stranger to me. Anyway, I feel like we're getting off topic. Guys, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you for the next chapter, which, oh my god, I'm going to tell you now. We've got amazing guests on it. We have the Delightful Sausage, uh, who are an incredible double act. They uh, were nominated for the Edinburgh Comedy Festival Award. They've been on the MASH Report last week now. Uh, All sorts of TV stuff there. Stars are rising. Uh, So what better way to celebrate that than to bring them right back down to earth in this podcast. So we'll see them there for Chapter 5, The Stillness.